The news continues. So let's hand it over to Victor Blackwell and CNN Tonight. Victor. All right, John, thank you. I'm Victor Blackwell, and this is CNN Tonight. We begin with the possible threat posed by Donald Trump, keeping classified documents in his beach club. The director of national intelligence tells Congress her office is digging through the classified documents to understand the risk of being taken to Mar-a-Lago in the first place. Then there's the danger looming over non-political career civil servants. The head of the National Archives said threats from Donald Trump supporters are coming in. The archivist informed the staff of messages from the public accusing us of corruption and conspiring against the former president. At the same time, some are congratulating the archives for bringing him down. Now, the archivist has made clear that neither is their goal, but threats like these we know go beyond talk. Earlier this month, the man carrying a long gun tried to enter the FBI's Cincinnati office. And that real-world example is crucial context as politicians like Republican Senator Lindsey Graham go on Fox and say this. I'll say this. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle, which you presided over and did a hell of a good job, there'll be riots in the streets. And just so there's no misunderstanding, he said it again. If they try to prosecute President Trump for mishandling classified information after Hillary Clinton set up a server in her basement, they literally will be riots in the street. The former president quickly amplified those comments and urged the so-called great agents and others in the FBI to say we aren't going to take it anymore. This is the same former president who just weeks ago reportedly sent a letter to the attorney general writing, quote, the country is on fire. What can I do to reduce the heat? We've seen how these comments sit with more radicalized members of the MAGA movement, like when Donald Trump told members of the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. Well, a member of the extremist group testified under oath about the impact of those words. Would you say that Proud Boys numbers increased after the stand back, stand by comment? Exponentially. I'd say tripled, probably. Tripled. Will Hurd, a Republican and former congressman from Texas, joins me now. He served on the Intelligence Committee before leaving Congress, in part because of Donald Trump's comments. Congressman, it's good to have you. Um, I want to start uh, with uh, what we learned from the affidavit. We'll get to the rhetoric from Lindsey Graham in a moment. But we understand that uh, the documents included, uh, this is from the affidavit, intelligence information derived from clandestine human sources. That was you. I mean, you were an undercover CIA agent. So what danger does uh, this type of document, this information unsecured, present to the people during the work you used to do? Well, the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, is going to figure that out. She's going to review and her team is going to review the kind of information they have. Uh, the fact that there was what's called uh, human classification system, HCS information, this is information that was obtained from human sources. Um, it also had signals intelligence, SIGINTS, uh, that was included. It also included things called NOFORN. This is information that we don't even share with our, with our allies. Um, the fact that that's, that information was included, and that was just in 
the 15 boxes that Trump and his team had handed over uh, to the to the National Archives. Uh, the fact that, that that's in there, it, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And here's what this does and the impact this has on our intelligence operations around the world. Um, when I was re- recruiting assets and, and stealing secrets and handling uh, uh, clandestine sources, and they're, you know, the people that are doing that now are probably having to answer the question, you know, it, they're gonna, they're, the assets are probably asking their handlers, is this gonna happen to me? Is my information that I'm giving you and, 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 and sharing with you gonna get in the wrong hands and gonna end up in, in somebody's hotel and potentially um, get exposed and, and impact me and my family? Um, the lack of trust that this is creating uh, in, in all of our in, intelligence circles is, 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 is tough. Now, we don't know if this information has, has gotten out. And instead of Donald Trump whining uh, about there being a, a witch hunt against him, he should be talking about who had access to these rooms of these information so that we can get a proper damage assessment and know who all had access and potentially uh, could have taken this information and shared it with adversaries. Uh, that part of the damage assessment is going to be harder, especially if, if Donald Trump and his team uh, does not cooperate in understanding who could have potentially had access to this information. Let's talk about some of these calls for greater transparency. Uh, Governor Sununu of New Hampshire is calling for uh, the topics uh, related to these documents, these top secret documents to be released. Is there a way to, to do that, to, to declassify what these documents are about, if not all of the, the text of those documents? What do you think? So, so I think ultimately um, for, for FBI and DOJ to do something um, this significant, right, it's a, a search of a former president, we all know that's never happened before. When you do something that has never been done, you got to have a level of transparency uh, that we've never seen before. That's why I'm glad we were able to see parts of the affidavit that explain the kind of information they had. And I think ultimately what the director of, of national intelligence has got to figure out is could the, the revelation of the topics of the information, could that lead um, to, to an impact on sources and methods? Um, only folks that have, have read the information and know the substance of, of the info. Uh, let's say this is from human sources that are still providing information to us, or it's coming from a signals intelligence platform that is still in place. Uh, that could ultimately impact long-term national security and our ability for our intelligence community to understand this super dangerous world uh, that we live in. Now, if it won't have an impact on sources and method, then sure, we should be able to share that. But it would only happen if you have a, a real review of, of the documents that were in the 15 boxes, which we should have a good idea of, and then you have this other 11 um, boxes of information that the FBI found in their search. Let's talk about uh, the case moving forward. Um, as you mentioned, what we're discussing now, these are uh, documents that were in the 15 boxes that were handed over in January. Of course, there were more documents in June as a result of the subpoena, and then more documents uh, taken from Mar-a-Lago after the search three weeks ago today. The, the, the former president kept some documents back, obviously. Should the the former president be prosecuted for refusing to hand over all the documents uh, as required? Let's put it this way, Victor. If I had those documents in my 
you know, a, a basement, you know, or, or an extra room in my house in San Antonio, Texas, there's no question um, that I would be that I would be prosecuted. Uh, let's make sure we have a clear understanding of all the information and what the damage assessment is of that. And this is ultimately going to be a question that DOJ has to answer. We know the president had information and was storing it improperly. We know that for a fact. Now, the question that investigators got to figure out is, did they know that they were withholding further information and they lied to the National Archives and to Department of Justice in the other info that was found in those 11 boxes found by the, by the FBI search? Um, this is something, this is about abuse of power. This is about mishandling um, our information. This, for me, brings up even more questions about how do they handle this kind of information when they were in office and had, you know, uh, regular access um, to to super sensitive um, information on on secrets of our nation. It's important to protecting our nation, um, but also about individuals that are risking their lives in order to give us that understanding. Well, Congressman, uh, two things here: um, if no person is above the law, and you say mm -hmm. that if you had those documents in your basement, you'd face prosecution. It, it feels like you're seventy five percent there. Uh, is that a yes that this former president should be prosecuted for refusing to hand over these documents? Uh, because this is so sensitive and, you know, we got to know the details. Details matter. And this is why I think uh, Merrick Garland understands the, the stakes that are at play here. Yeah. Uh, I think he understands uh, how his, his agencies are being um, tarred and feathered uh, by some that are trying to obfuscate what they really did. Um, and so ultimately, this is going to be a decision that DOJ has to make based on the details of the information uh, that was, that was, that was uh, in, in, those, in those documents. And it's hard to make that assessment unless you've actually read uh, what those documents are. All right. I will also say that there was an attorney for uh, former President Trump who signed a document attesting to there being no additional uh, classified mm. information at Mar-a-Lago, although the statutes in the affidavit don't require the documents to include classified information. Let me end where we started with um, Senator Graham here. When he says there will be riots in the streets, do you hear a, a prediction or do you hear a threat? Uh, I, I hope, I hope it is him trying to make a prediction rather than making a threat. But, but here's the reality, whether it's Senator Graham or others, there are some that are making those threats. I think um, Donald Trump himself is trying to intimate that and in talking about members of the FBI uh, rising up. We do not need leaders that are trying to, to fear monger and, and erode that trust in all of our, in, 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 in our institutions. And we need people and we need leaders that are willing to inspire the country. And, and here's the fact when it comes to, to Donald Trump. Donald Trump got lucky in 2016. Um, he lost the House. He lost the Senate. And he lost the White House. And now anybody, because he's getting back into the news cycle, it's having an impact on other races. The, our likely, the likelihood of Republicans 
to take back the Senate is, is, is extremely low, if not zero, when you have Senator McConnell talking about the fact that it's more likely that the, the House flips. There's also folks within the House realizing that the margin of our victory is going to be more narrow because of the distractions of someone uh, like Donald Trump. And at this moment in time, this is much bigger than any one of these issues. Uh, we should be focused on these national security threats and technology threats that our country is going to be facing over the next decade. And depending on how we handle that is going to determine our place in the world. And when you have these kinds of conversations and this distraction, um, it, it, it hurts not only the party, but it hurts the country. Former Congressman Will Hurd, thank you. An October Pleasure. surprise in August. That's how some Republicans are characterizing the Mar-a-Lago search, even some who aren't exactly Donald Trump's biggest defenders. They think the timing is just a little too convenient ahead of the midterms. Do they have a point? Or is this just a talking point? We're getting into all of that with our experts next. Despite all of the redactions in the Mar-a-Lago affidavit, one thing was clear. The former president's team took and mishandled highly classified documents. But that was not the focus of the few Republicans who came to Trump's defense on the Sunday shows this weekend. Instead, they're zeroing in on the timing of the search ahead of this year's midterm elections. For, former President Trump has been out of office for going on two years now. Where, why, I think this is a coincidence just happening a few months before the midterm elections. He should have turned the documents over and apparently had turned a number of documents over. George, what I wonder about is why this could go on for almost two years and less than 100 days before the election. Suddenly we're talking about this. Let's get some perspective now from a top legal mind, former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig and two political experts, Phil Bump of The Washington Post and Scott Jennings, former special assistant to President George W. Bush. Gentlemen, good evening to you. Phil, let me start with you. Is there any um, credibility to this question of the timing of the search so close to the midterm elections. Yeah, I mean, I think Senator Blunt made a great point there, which is that Donald Trump turned over some documents in January, right? That was the point. If you go back and you can look at the timeline here, the National Archives, May of 2021, said, hey, we're missing some stuff we ought to have, like those infamous letters from Kim Jong-un. January of 2022, Trump turns over all this material, but doesn't turn over all of it, right? And so if we're talking about when this thing could have been resolved, we can look at January 2022. If you are trying to resolve this in good faith and turn over all the things that you know you ought to turn over, that's the moment at which it could happen. Then we start this process where the National Archives goes to DOJ. DOJ eventually obtains a subpoena, starts interviewing people, and discovers there is more material there. They go to, they go to Mar-a-Lago in June. They visit this room where it's being stored, say, hey, you got to secure this a little bit better yeah, it's happening right before the midterm elections, but it's also been 18 months in which Donald Trump has had this material and he has known that he has had to turn it back over. Scott, if he gave everything to the National Archives in January, there would be no need for a subpoena or a search. Yeah, I mean, look, he obviously has documents at his house that he shouldn't have had. At the same time, I do think it's a legitimate question uh, about the timing. And and to Philip's point, you know, why did they wait so long to go get it? I mean, we've been told these were grave national security secrets, like this could put the people and, and our secrets in jeopardy. Why, if, if they're that grave, why didn't you go get them before? I think that's a legitimate question. And one way the DOJ could potentially resolve it on the transparency piece is go to the intelligence committees in Congress. They exist for a reason. They can look at these documents. They have clearance. 
And I think that would begin to give people, political people, an idea of whether this was much ado about nothing or something as serious as it's been, you know, anonymously sourced in the press. And you trust there will be no leaks Going to these committees in Congress. I think the Senate Intelligence Committee would be good to go to. <laughs> okay, so don't go to the House. Just Senate. I mean, okay. I, mean, I, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I, look, letting some of these politicians look at these. We tr- I mean, look, they have clearance. We trust these people to look at documents all the time. This is part of the process. I, to me, that would help everybody. Yeah, why not do that? Yeah, uh, DOJ's got a tricky middle ground to try to find here throughout this, which is on the one hand, there is this great call for transparency, greater than we've seen in any other case. On the other hand, they do have to maintain and adhere to the sort of prosecutorial principles. I mean, understand, the amount of information and transparency we've already seen in this case is far beyond any normal subject of an investigation ever gets. The affidavit, half of it was blacked out, but half of it we saw last Friday, nobody gets to see those before anyone gets charged. This is, I can't ever think of that happening. I've seen hundreds or thousands of these affidavits. So Merrick Garland, I've certainly been critical of, and I will, I'm sure, be, continue to be critical of. But I do give him credit here because he's trying to meet the call for transparency without compromising those core prosecutorial principles of due process and fairness. Mm. Let me ask you about what uh, Lindsey Graham is saying, that if Trump is prosecuted, there will be riots in the streets. Um, why is he doing this? And should he have paired it with but there should not be violence if the president is prosecuted. Of, of course. I mean, political violence is a real problem. I mean, we've seen it manifest itself time and again. I mean, it's been going on for a few years now. This isn't recent. And we've had people, you know, sh- from shooting up the congressional baseball practice all the way to going to Brett Kavanaugh's house to January 6th to, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff has gone on out there. People, uh, deranged people hear things and then they take matters into their own hands. So everybody everywhere has to denounce and uh, talk against the, the prospect of political violence. Do I think that he is making a prediction? Maybe. And, uh, and obviously there are people who are extremely amped up about this, which is why I keep going back to this idea of transparency. Even if you can't make it all public for national security reasons, at least going to the Congress and at least giving people that we trust to look at these documents a chance to come out and say, we saw it, this investigation matters, that might help mollify this. But your original question, no, no doubt. We, we can't we can't countenance political violence. I agree. I think Lindsey Graham needs to be unequivocally condemned for those comments. I, I don't see any way to put a fine gloss on this. I mean, to me, why would you say this twice, right? And Donald Trump immediately, not retweeted, retruthed, I guess, feels silly saying that, but that's what it's called, retruthed this um, and amplified it. But what would Lindsey Graham's motivation, purpose be in saying that? To me, it's one, to try to send a chilling message to prosecutors, and two, to put that idea out there in the minds of people who might riot. There's, to me, there's no other reason to say that without the obvious disclaimer, Victor, that you said, which is, but this ought to not happen. Yeah. I mean, mo- mobs are bad, and you cannot yes. let justice be mobs derailed. Mobs are bad, yes. <laughs> Thank you for saying and, that. And, and the point is, justice cannot be derailed because of the threat of yes. mobs. Okay. No matter what issue, politician, party, you can't let angry mobs derail our institutions. This is what causes a lack of faith, further lack of faith in institutions. So... Just we, we have to say it over and over again. And this was Senator Count Me Out after uh, January 6th, who said, I'm backed out. I'm not uh, a part of this anymore. You've got new reporting on this. Too. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you make that point, and it's important because the context in which he said Count Me Out was not, hey, this Capitol riot is horrible and so on and so forth. It was, look, Donald Trump tried to make his case, and I believe in his case that the election, there's something fishy about it. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the key context of what he said over the weekend. It wasn't just that he was saying there was riots in the streets. He was saying that because of what had happened, because of the government's purported m- misactions, basically leveraging misinformation and false claims that are very prominent on the right, because of that 
we're going to see riots. So it wasn't just like there's going to be this reaction. It was people don't trust the government because they believe these things that are not true, which is exactly what he did on January 6th. And he, just, people believe things that weren't true, and this is what the result was. No, I mean, look, Republicans are on probation over this because of January the 6th. I mean, I mean, we, we can't be flippantly discussing no. mobs in the streets. We had mobs in the streets, yeah. and it was wrong, and it was a terrible thing. So fooling around with this, uh, even rhetorically, not smart. No, certainly isn't. All right, Ellie, thank you. Phil, thank Scott, you. Uh, stick with me. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll talk about how some Republicans now running for office are dialing back the public stances, thinking maybe uh, they went a little too far to the right. But next, President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Some Democrats in tough races are not exactly happy with the political payoff. We're talking to one of them. When President Biden announced the federal government will forgive student debt for tens of millions of Americans, many of his allies cheered. But not all of his supporters are celebrating. For some Democrats in competitive races, they're distancing themselves from the plan. They fear backlash from working class voters when Democrats seem to be gaining momentum. Among them, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan. He is locked in a tighter than expected Senate race with Republican J.D. Vance. Ryan says the debt plan, quote, sends the wrong message. Congressman Ryan joins me now. Congressman, good to have you. Let me start with uh, you say this sends the wrong message. Why? Well, I think one, it sends the wrong message. Every worker out there is struggling right now, not just people who have college degrees or college debt. I think we need a tax cut for everybody right now. A lot of, you know, people work in construction, home health care. Their gas prices are high, too. Their food prices are high, too. So we've got to acknowledge that we need to recognize everybody is struggling in this, in this economy. Look, I'm not uh, you know, trying to ignore the fact that this is a huge burden. I think we can do things like allow people to renegotiate down the interest rates on their loan. Um, so it's outrageous, 8, 9, 10, 12 percent. So we should be able to allow them to do that. But the other piece of this, too, is that there's absolutely no solution into fixing the extraordinary increases in college costs. So if you've got a kid in college right now, prices are still going through the roof. So if we're going to do something like this, you need to tie it to being able to control college costs and university costs going forward so that we're not going to be back in the same boat in five or 10 years, having to spend another three, $400 billion to do the same thing. It just doesn't make any sense to me. You make a good point on the cost and bringing the cost of, of college down. But uh, you have for years advocated for more than just renegotiating the debt. Let's go back to 2018 when you called on Congress to, quote, do more to help bring down uh, debt and make college more affordable. In 2018, you tweeted in favor of student debt relief. 2020, you voted in favor of a bill that included plans to cancel up to 10000 in student loan debt. Later that year, you co-sponsored bipartisan legislation to provide student debt relief to essential workers. Also in 2020, you supported an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that required the federal government to uh, provide 10000 in assistance to some private student loan uh, holders. When did you change your mind? Well, look, I'm the first to acknowledge that uh, college is extremely high, extremely pricey. Most people can't afford it, that the interest rates are way too high and we need to do something to be helpful. But I don't think doing that just in a vacuum without doing anything to control college costs. Like, look, yeah, of course, everybody's for, for helping out these people who are getting, you know, getting charged 10 or 12 percent. We have to do something. But that shouldn't happen in a vacuum. It needs to be happened, especially coming out of the pandemic, 
especially with huge inflation. We've got to help all workers. So that's why I say, if you're going to do this, let's do a broad tax cut that helps all working families. And if you're going to do something with college debt, then you better do something equally as bold with college costs, because Mm -hmm. there's no way we should just throw money at this problem without solving the actual root cause of the problem. And that's the argument I'm trying to make. We support these kinds of things, but you can't do it in a vacuum. You've got to make sure you're controlling college costs and that everybody else who's working just as hard, making 40, 50 grand, they may have bought a truck, you know, went into the building and construction trades. They had to buy a truck. No one's going to take care of their loan. Uh, If you're traveling around as a home health care worker, you're paying three fifty, four bucks a gallon of gas. Who's helping that person? So all I'm saying is everybody needs help. That's how we should address this. And if you're going to zero in on college loans and debt, you better do something about college costs. Hmm. I hear what you're saying uh, today. I'm saying uh, that these proposals that you made over 2018 and 2020 didn't call for renegotiation of of debt or for a broad tax cut. Uh, These were uh, cancellations or forgiveness of uh, college loans. But let me move on here. Um, You are certainly in a state where... um, the, the votes of working class uh, uh, Ohioans, that's going to be what, if you go to the Senate, is going to, to carry you there. Um, the president said that a portion of the Trump movement, the extreme MAGA philosophy, he calls it's like semi-fascism. Does that hurt you with the voters you need uh, to win in November? Uh, no, I, no. Look, it, it's it's straight fashion. If you're storming the Capitol on January 6th, if you're beating the United States Capitol Police over the head with a lead pipe in order to overturn an election, if you are making bold steps to ban books and to do all of these things that are, you know, e- even to the point where you want to control a woman's body to the point where if a 10 year old a uh, girl is raped. You say that the government should mandate that uh, pregnancy. You have a Supreme Court justice saying they want to get rid of birth control, nullify marriages. I mean, what what else would you talk about? How else do you explain this other than a small group of people who have hijacked the Supreme Court? They've hijacked state legislatures, and what they've done in the in the short term, and what they're going to do in the long term is continue to hurt working class people. We're not going to have a great economy if we have a government that's interfering in everybody's personal life. They want to punish businesses where they don't agree with the culture like they're doing down in Florida. Like this is mm. huge governmental overreach, the largest governmental overreach we've seen in our lifetime, a complete violation of the personal freedoms, the free markets, free businesses. This is a governmental attack. And, and so these people, you can call it what you want, but to me, it seems a lot like people who want to get a hold of the government and punish people and control people. And I will tell you that I'm traveling around Ohio, which is a purple state back and forth, 88 counties, rural Ohio. People are fed up with the government overreach. They want the government out of their lives and they want to go about their business. And if they have a tricky problem or you know tragedy in their life, they want to be able to deal with it. And so we're not going to get into the name calling, but my goodness gracious, there's a lot of people who want to do a lot of controlling out there. All right, Congressman Tim Ryan, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. All right. What a difference the summer can make. Just a few months ago, Republicans thought that the House and Senate were theirs to lose. Well, now the sure thing 
doesn't look so sure anymore. Some candidates are trying to step a little bit to the left as the winds shift and the midterms approach. The political winds appear to be shifting for Republicans in Washington. Sure, they are still expected to take the House in the fall. But a new CBS YouGov poll shows that their projected gains are shrinking. The poll suggests that three key issues are driving the change. Abortion, falling gas prices, and anything that diverts attention from the economy, namely Donald Trump. The proof is not only in what GOP candidates are putting on their websites, but also what they're taking off of those sites. Take uh, Arizona Republican Blake Masters, who is scrubbing Trump's 2020 election lies from his Senate campaign website. Now, earlier this month, the section of the Masters plan read, quote, We need to get serious about election integrity. The 2020 election was a rotten mess. If we had had a a free and fair election, President Trump would be sitting in the Oval Office today and America would be so much better off. Now, look at the right side of your screen. That's what's there now. We need to get serious about election integrity. He dropped everything else. Masters has also edited his website to tone down his position on abortion. Doug Mastriano, a candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, has also gone silent about it, despite once calling abortion his number one issue. Let's bring in Maria Cardona into the conversation tonight. Scott Jennings, Phil Bump are also back with me. Scott, how can Blake Masters run away from the election denial when that really was what sealed the endorsement from President Trump for his nomination? Yeah, you can't. I mean, I mean, okay. because, uh, you know, it's the uh, year of our Lord, 2022. Everything you say is videotaped and mm-hmm. audio recorded and, and archived on the Internet. So you, you really can't. Now, what you can control is what you choose to focus on. And so you can run, and this happens all the time in both parties. People focus on certain issues in primaries and then change their focus for general elections, pivoting, uh, if you will. Um, and, and that's what I would encourage any of these general election candidates to do. Running an election, a general election focused on Trump and the 2020 election is is a folly running it on inflation and you know quality of life, crime, cost of living. Those are good ideas. Uh, and so you can't really get away from what you did, but you can focus on the issues that matter to more general election voters, which is what I hope they're doing. Is that going to work? This is why it won't work, because there was a poll recently that showed that threats to our democracy, Victor, was the number one issue for Americans. Turns out Americans like their democracy. They like their constitution. They don't like when they see insurrectionists trying to destroy the Capitol, trying to overturn a free and fair election. And when you have 147 members of Congress that are still there today, that are all running for re-election, who voted to not certify or who didn't vote to certify the election. And when you have over 100 GOP candidates who won in the primaries, many of which are election deniers, Americans understand how dangerous that is. Put on top of that, Roe v. Wade, the fact that women no longer have the right to have agency over their own bodies and that state legislatures are passing uh, egregious law after egregious law that put women's lives in danger. We saw what happened in Kansas. We saw what is happening all over the country. That's why you have these Republicans scared about that, wanting to scrub their websites, trying to pretend that they didn't say all those things. The general election is about a contrast. Everything that they, they said goes to that contrast, and that's what Democrats are going to be focusing on. You know, we've asked uh, Democrats so many times what were the lessons of the Kansas vote, of uh, New York 17 um, uh, as well. What's the lesson for Republicans from these votes? Yeah, I mean, I think that 
the very fact that, I mean, and Scott's absolutely right, of course, you know, when you get into a general election, you, you, you move to the middle. I mean, it's sort of fascinating. Doug Mastriano hasn't done that, really. Uh, so he's sort of the exception to the rule here. Uh, but we see the, the fact that they are changing this. They do a lot more polling than we do, right? The, you know, the media, polling's expensive. The campaigns spend a lot of time and energy in this. The fact that they are focusing on these changes suggests that they understand these are points of weakness. So I think that itself bolsters the idea. But again, Look, we are still at some distance from Election Day, and I think that there is a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats right now seeing a lot of changes that have happened over the course of the past several weeks that no one should feel confident are going to carry through to November. They may. It may, that may be the case, but there's still a lot of time for things to change. And in the past four midterm elections, in three of them, we've seen changes against Democrats. Uh, and I think that that is sort of the asterisk that hangs around all of this. You know, another thing about this issue of what you focus on in a general election, it's also happening to the Democrats. You just had Tim Ryan from uh, Ohio on, and he's on here for the second day in a row on CNN bashing Joe Biden's big student uh, uh, debt relief plan. There's a reason he's bashing it, because he's trying to pivot more to what middle class, working class voters in Ohio want, as opposed to what the most partisan or fringe liberal, you know, Democrat primary voters would want. So it, it's a it's a pretty common thing. And as you did on the interview, you questioned him about his past votes and his quest in his past statement. So I don't think it's too uncommon for general election candidates in high profile races to be doing this. But of course, um, everything you said is always going to be on the record. So it, it doesn't absolve you from answering the questions. That's very different than what Masters is doing or what all of these other Republicans trying to run away from the most extreme things that they said and did. Tim Ryan, what I heard him say is that he thinks that this kind of relief should be given to everybody. And look, I, I agree. Joe Biden agrees. The fact that we can't do that right now because Republicans would never go for it means that Joe Biden had to do something that he had the power to do through executive order. That's what you heard. Wait, wait, wait. Yes, I did. Okay. Because, you and, said and by the way, agree with Joe Biden? And by the way, he's right. He's right about, about having to reform the whole, the whole education, the way that we actually educate our kids in this country. Absolutely, that's got to have. Wait a minute. But there has to be a fix. What I heard from him is that this does not do it. And he's right. This isn't a fix. But Joe Biden was not looking for the fix. He was looking to help students who have crushing student debt. And by the way, it was a campaign promise. This is something that is going to help a hell of a lot of kids, young people that he had promised to help. It is hugely popular. And it's going to be something that he's going to run on and Democrats as well. Here's the other part to this that that ties in both of these Mm -hmm. themes. Tim Ryan can also be very confident in going after this because he knows that the people who this is benefiting are like, yeah, I'm going to go out and vote for Democrats now, right? right? He doesn't need to appeal those Democrats anymore because Joe Biden did it for him, right? Right. And so it's the same thing. Blake Masters can go ahead and scrub that stuff about the election stuff because he knows all those Republicans that he appealed to in the primary are going to come out and vote for him in November anyway. So that's the other flip, the flip side of this is that now the bases are engaged. Yeah. You still got to turn them out, but now you can move to the middle. And that's what Ryan's doing because he knows. But that I, he see, I see there's a huge problem for Republicans because <laughs> the moderates and the independents are way against what the extreme positions that they have taken during the primaries. And that is going to be really tough for them to run away from. What? And certainly their Democratic opponents are not going to let them do that. Why do you think it is that Ryan in Ohio, Cortez Masto in Nevada, Bennett in Colorado, several uh, moderate Democrats, supposed moderates in, in purple districts in the House. Why do you think it is they all immediately, immediately came out against this Biden plan? Because they're doing the same thing that we're talking about masters doing. They are desperately trying to get away from something that they think is going to sound extreme to the middle of the road voters in their state. You've got num- scores of Democrats coming out against this thing. 
It's, it's the exact same tactic, trying it's to not, not play to the front. I, I agree with you that, that, that is, they can do whatever they want because they know which voters they need to appeal to. Yeah. But, but wanting to give students relief, $10,000, is very different from wanting to destroy our Constitution and take away women's right to choose what they want to do with their own bodies. All right, Maria, Phil, Scott, we got Carla here. Thank you all. Of course, passionate issue. Uh, it could have been game, set, career tonight for Serena Williams an amazing, legendary, historic, beautiful career, to put it mildly. But she's not done yet. Let's talk a little sports. We got some good news and bad news for you tonight. Starting with the good news, Serena Williams will advance to the second round of the U.S. Open. She defeated her opponent in two sets, 6-3, 6-3. Here's the not-so-great news. It is likely the final tennis tournament of her career. And the tributes continue to pour in for the athlete who has won 23 Grand Slam titles. She entered Arthur Ashe Stadium tonight to a standing ovation, cheers all around. Tennis legend Billie Jean King wrote, she's the GOAT, the greatest of all time, or at least the greatest of her time, since every generation gets better. Serena has changed how tennis is played. Now, earlier today, the 40-year-old posted a cover of herself from Time magazine with a caption, thank you everyone, it's been incredible. Here to talk about Serena's dynamic impact, CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. Christine, it is good to have you with me tonight. It's going to be hard to say goodbye to Serena uh, when this is all over because she has been so great, not just for um, women's tennis, but for sports. Without a doubt, Victor. The good news is we've got another 48 hours before we have to say goodbye to her as a singles player, at least 48 hours, because she did win. And, you know, it felt like a a title fight, like a heavyweight fight or a a Super Bowl Sunday. You know, the the atmosphere uh, at the U.S. Open was electric. I've covered many of them. And that was certainly as loud listening to it as I've ever heard. She deserves that and and more. And it's truly a celebration of not just a fabulous athlete, the greatest of all time, one of the most important athletes in any sport in the world over the last couple of decades, but it's it's also a celebration of an era and a time in sports and celebrating not only a Black woman, uh, but of course a female athlete at a time when we look at women athletes so differently than we did 10 or 15 years ago, in part, and maybe mostly because of the way Serena Williams has carried herself and won and won and won all of these years. Yeah, she's won so many years, but still falling short of uh, Margaret Court's Grand Slam title. Uh, Margaret has 24, had 24, Serena at 23. I've been fortunate enough to be at a few uh, ladies' finals where she has just come up short as the runner-up. Um, But still, even without breaking that record, and she certainly chased it, um, there just really is no one who ties her. A lot of people who are called uh, the GOAT in sports, they play team sports, right? Tom Brady plays a team sport. Um, Serena is out there on her own uh, doing this. That's true. I mean, there's there's nowhere to hide. You know, you make a mistake, it's all on you. I think that's why we have grown to love tennis. It's a sport I played my whole life um, and and grown to love Serena and the power and um, and her ability to win. As you said, she's fallen short for hitting 24. But this is the most competitive time in the history of women's tennis. So she is the greatest of all time. It's so much harder for her to win now than it was 
in the, uh, the you know uh, pre pre the 1970s or 80s. And so I think that's one of the things we're seeing here, that that Serena is just so dominant at the most important and most difficult time to, to do it, um, and has made it, I think, all the more interesting for people to watch. And you see the emotions, you know, and you see she wears her heart, Victor, on her sleeve. You almost don't even have to look at the scoreboard if she won 6-3, 6-3. You can tell just how she's reacting and um, and her mood and um, and the anger or the happiness. And, and we saw that increase as she got that first serve going and started to dominate the match tonight. Yeah. I hope we have more than 48 hours uh, with her as a, an active player. But what's next? Well, certainly she'll be able to play doubles with her sister. So we will have a little month longer, probably. Um, and again, she could keep winning, although it's going to get tougher, obviously, as it moves along. She, this is only her uh, fifth match. Uh, it's in, in 15 months. So yeah. she's been injured and out quite a bit. But what's next? The sky's the limit. I mean, she will be a part of our lives, I think, Victor, for the rest of our lives, uh, whether she's selling products, a spokesperson, obviously a working mom, uh, and all the things that Serena loves to do. So she'll be a big part of American lives and, and lives of people around the world yeah. for many, many years to come. All right, Christine Brennan, thank you. We'll be thank right you, back. Victor. All right, that's it for us tonight. I'm Victor Blackwell. Be sure to join me and Allison Camerata on CNN Newsroom tomorrow from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern. And I'll be back here tomorrow night at 9. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.